Well, let's stand as we read from Romans chapter 7 once again. Romans chapter 7, and we'll start reading at verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. If I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish." But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. You may be seated. We began last week to look at this controversial last half of Romans chapter 7. And we saw that there have been three major views of this section that have been held down through church history. The first one is that Paul is speaking here of a non-Christian, the man to whom the commandment has come, the man who's still under the law. Second view is that Paul is speaking here of a Christian. In fact, he's speaking of himself at the time of writing. Now, nothing could be further poles apart than that. And then the third view is that Paul is speaking here of a Christian, but a Christian who has not yet learned to walk in the Spirit, or as the saying goes, he's not yet passed into Romans 8. And... uh, For that matter, you could say he hasn't yet learned to walk in Romans 6 either. He hadn't entered into Romans 6. But at any rate, I suggested last week that the context of this section is almost enough by itself to tell us which one of these is the correct view. What is the context? Well, in uh, chapters 6 and 7, we saw that there are four questions and four answers to those questions that everything is structured around. Or you might say 
Uh, instead of four questions, you could say four anticipated misunderstandings or four anticipated distortions of what Paul has been teaching. And in every one of those four questions and answers, he follows the very same pattern every time. First of all, he gives the question, and then he follows it with a strong denial. God forbid, may it never be. And then he gives a very brief answer to the question, and then he expands upon that answer and uh, fills it out and explains it. And we looked at those. The first one is in verse 1 of chapter 6, and that starts out, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? And then the strong denial, God forbid. And then the, be- the brief answer, the summary, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, uh, that really says it all in a nutshell. We've died to sin. We're not in that realm. How could we go on living in sin? Then he goes on though and explains what he means that we died to sin. And he expands that on out, and that goes all the way down to verse 14, explaining that. Um, and then, uh, verse 15 of chapter 6, he comes up with another one of these anticipated misunderstandings. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And again, strong denial. God forbid. And then the basic answer. Don't you realize that whoever you yield yourself to, you're really slaves to that. So your real master is shown by the way you live. And then he goes on and expands that and explains how we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to God. We used to be slaves to sin, but we're not anymore. And so that's chapter 6. In chapter 7, here's another one of these questions. In verse 7, he says, What then is the law sin? Strong denial. God forbid. May it never be. And then the basic answer. I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. That's I wouldn't have known coveting except the law had said you shall not covet. That's the basic answer. And then he expands upon that and explains how all that took place in verses... Uh, 8 through 12 and clear on actually clear on down to where you get ready to start verse 13. Now look what's happening in verse 13. He starts verse 13 with this basic question again or this anticipated misunderstanding. Somebody's going to say, well, the law causes death. And he says, strong denial, God forbid, may it never be. And then he gives a brief answer to it not the law's problem, it's sin's problem. God gave this law so that sin might be exposed and produce death through even something good. Now what would you expect then that he's going to do in the next section? Well, you would expect that he's going to expand upon that brief answer that he's given and continue what he was saying. In other words, the whole context here, Contrary to what you may think, we do not torture babies. (laughs) Just stay with me. (laughs) What would you expect in the next section? You would expect him to expand upon the basic answer that he has given in verse 13. And so the whole setting here, the whole context and the whole setting uh, goes against that the, the idea that Paul is suddenly going to introduce something new. 
the whole setting goes against that. He's not suddenly going to start talking about um, the Christians need to learn to walk in the Spirit, for example. That's not the context at all. And he's not going to suddenly start talking about the Christian struggle with remaining sin. That's not the subject. That's not what he's been talking about. So, we are set up for something different here, and we would expect him to talk about something else. And what we would expect is, we expect him to talk about the law and the goodness of the law and the effects of the law upon someone who's still in the flesh. That's what we would expect to come up in this section. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians never struggle with remaining sin. And it doesn't mean that Christians don't sometimes feel like they're in Romans 7. But the question is, 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 that, is that what Paul is talking about here? And by the same token, it doesn't mean that Christians never have any kind of so-called deeper life experiences where they enter into a new walk in the Spirit. But that's still, that's not what he's talking about. That's the issue. And it does have great practical implications, as I hope we'll see eventually here as we go along in in Romans 7. Well, um, Lord willing, we're going to look in a later message at these two views that I believe are the wrong views, and we'll try to bring out some of the things that are good about them, and also some of the things where I feel like they have caused great damage, especially when they're carried to extremes. But right now, what I'd like for us to do is to go ahead and and launch into this section at the last half of chapter 7, and uh, to just try to follow along in the flow here and uh, get an overview of it. We've seen the context and the setting, and we've seen what we would expect to come next. But the question is, is what does come next? And so um, we're going to try to look at this section, get an overview of it, and follow the flow down through here and see if it lines up with what we would expect it to say. So let's just go down through here. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, what is that? Well, it's a general statement about this the position of the man who is being represented here. It's a general statement about his position. What is his position? Well, he is of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, that's the first general statement about this person. And then verse 15 tells us how this state of bondage to sin manifests itself in practice. So notice verse 15. That which I'm doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So that's how this condition of bondage to sin works itself out in practice. Then verses 16 and 17 draw two conclusions from the facts of verse 15. What are the two conclusions? Well, first of all, first conclusion is that the law itself is good. And that's what he says in verse 16. If I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Well, that's the first conclusion. The law is good. And then the second conclusion is given in verse 17, and that is the real problem is not the law, but it's indwelling sin. So now, verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. That's the real problem, indwelling sin. 
All right, verses 18 to 20, the next three verses, expand upon what he has said in verses 16 and 17. And they give a little more detail. Now, that's typical. We've seen that of Paul. He gives a brief statement and expands upon them. That's what he's going to do in these next three verses, verses 18 through 20. And uh, this is what he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Similar statement. So, uh, notice again that he speaks about sin dwelling in him. And uh, he hasn't really said where that sin dwells in him, but you get a little hint here that it has to do with his flesh. And he's going to make this explicit as we go along. All right, verse 21. Another general statement or summary of the position of this man. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. So, general statement similar to verse 14. Then verses 22 and 23 expand upon this statement again. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Now, um, he tells us here clearly where the sin dwells. And it dwells in his members, in the flesh, in the members of his body. And he describes himself here again as a prisoner. He says, making me a prisoner. In other words, this is parallel to verse 14. I am a flesh sold in bondage under sin. So, it has to do with sin dwelling in my members, and I'm a prisoner. All right, verse 24. I know this is kind of just flying through these, but we want to get a little overview. Verse 24, the cry of wretchedness and the question as to who will set him free. And then verse 25, it begins with a momentary or anticipatory cry of relief. And then the main, uh, thanks be to God, and then the main part of the verse is a summary of what he's been talking about. Uh, I think this cry of relief just looks forward to what he's going to get into. But uh, the main flow of the verse is the summary of everything that he said thus far. So, that's a basic overview. Now, the question is, does that fit with what we expected this section to be about? Uh, In other words, do do verses 14 through 25 continue the flow of verses 7 through 13? That's the question we're asking. And uh, I would say, yes, they do continue that flow. And why do I say that? First of all, Verse 14 begins with the word for. And never was there a time when the word for is more important for understanding the flow. It's incredible to me that some translations leave out the word for. Just unbelievable. But it's important here. He says in verse 13, the problem is not with the law, the problem is with sin. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of flesh. 
sold into bondage to sin. In other words, uh, verse 14 is not introducing some new theme, but it's continuing what Paul has been saying in verse 13. Now, that's really important. He's continuing with what he's been saying. And it goes right on in verse 15, For that which I'm doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I want. See that it's four, four, four. He's just going right on from what he said back here in verse 13 about the law. All right, that's the first reason that I'd say yes, this follows the flow. Secondly, what else does Paul say in verse 14? Well, he says we know that the law is spiritual. Why is that important? Because he's still talking about law. The theme down through here is law and why men fail under the law. So he's still talking about the law. And uh, not only is he talking about the law, but he says that the law is good. The law is spiritual. Same thing he said in verse 12. The law, the, the law is uh, holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's talking about the law and the fact that the law is good. You see that in verse 16. I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. And in uh, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law, the law of God. So he's talking about the law. It's a sub-theme all the way down through here. Just what we would expect. Continuing to talk about the goodness of the law. But notice what else. Thirdly, notice that the theme of slavery to sin goes right down through this passage. Verse 14, sold in bondage to sin. Verse 15, forced to do the very thing that he hates. Verse 23, a prisoner to the law of sin. Verse 24, who will set me free? That's all the language of slavery to sin. But it's not just slavery to sin. It's slavery to sin in the context of law. And that's exactly what he's been talking about all the way since verse 14 of chapter 6. He says, we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It won't be master over you because you're not under the law. Implication, if you're under the law, you are a slave to sin. And he carries that out even further in verse 4 of chapter 7 and verse 5 of chapter 7. He says, we died to the law so that we might be married to Christ and really have some fruit for God. And then verse 5, he says, while we were back in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Well, that's exactly what he's talking about here. Sin in the presence of law. And so, all the way down through here, this theme of slavery to sin for the person who is under the law. Fourth reason. Notice this. Paul talks in verse 5 about those who are in the flesh and about the sinful passions that are working in the members of our body. So where does this sin work? It works in our body. Well, wouldn't you expect something to come up about that? Yeah, and here it is. In verses 14 to 25, he says, the problem is sin's dwelling in the members of my body. And that goes all the way down through here. Verse 14, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Verse 18, uh, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And verse 23, uh, a different law in the members of my body making me a prisoner to the law of sin which is in my members. And verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death, or this body of death. He's talking about the flesh, you see. Now one more thing. Back in verse 5, he also talks about the fact that 
this all resulted in death. It bore fruit for death. So wouldn't you expect him to say something about that? And he does. He talks about uh, all the way through here, in uh, uh, beginning in verse 9, um, sin came alive and I died. The commandment resulted in death for me. Verse 11, it killed me. Verse 13, that which is good, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? And so on. Affecting my death through that which is good. And he ends the whole section off that's coming up with that, this body of death. So you see all the way down through here, it's exactly what you would expect. Uh, Paul continues the theme that was already un- under discussion in verse 13. Now, You've got to remember the flow down through here. In verses 8 to 12, he's not talking about the typical lost man on the street. He's talking about, a. I mean, the, the typical lost man doesn't say, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That, I mean, Paul himself never even could say that. And he was a Pharisee, and he couldn't say that until the commandment came to him. And once the commandment came to him, then he realizes the spirituality of the law, and he begins to earnestly try to keep it, and then he and sin comes alive and he dies. Now this, you, nowhere all along here thus far has he been talking about the typical lost man. And so we should expect when we get to verse 14 and following, he's talking about a special type of person. He's talking about the man to whom the commandment has come. And the man who realizes that he's a sinner and he realizes that he can't fight against this thing. And so we have to keep that in mind as we uh, go down through here. This man in, from verse 14 and following says a lot of things that lost people don't say. I mean, and you ought to expect that because the man in verses 8 to 12 says a lot of things that lost people don't say. You see? Okay, so we've got the the basic... Flow. Now, with that massive setting of the stage, <laughs> let's begin then to look at verse 14. And what an amazing verse this is. Even I think even the first half of the verse is amazing because Paul says that the law is spiritual. And that seems to me like a very unlikely statement for Paul to make. Uh, let me give you some examples. In Galatians 4.9, He refers to the law as the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. (laughs) Amazing. You observe days and months and seasons and years and so on. Things that were taught in the law. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, he says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what was to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He says all that stuff was just shadows. We've got the reality now. Now, he's, this is the same guy that makes statements like that, and then he turns around and says, we know that the law is spiritual. Now, that's amazing to me. What does he mean that the law is spiritual? I think, first of all, he means something like he says in verse 12, the law is holy holy, righteous, and good. But it's more than that. When he says that the law is spiritual, I think he's talking about the fact that the law reaches down into your innermost being, right down into your heart. 
In other words, he's talking about the essence of the law. It doesn't deal primarily with externals. It deals with the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It deals with internals. It's spiritual. He's talking about the same thing that the Lord Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 when He said if you hate somebody, you've murdered them already in your heart. And the same when He says you, if you lust for someone, you've committed adultery already in your heart. The law is spiritual. It gets down to your real motives and what's going on on the inside. And uh, He's already talked about this back in chapter 2. Let's just turn back there. We've talked about this already. But verses 28 and 29. Or, I'm sorry, verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keep the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now think of this. Here's a guy that's breaking one of the biggest commandments in the eyes of the Jews. He hadn't been circumcised. That was one of the big things. And Paul says, suppose this guy that breaks one of the biggest things in the law keeps the requirement of the law. In other words, in his mind, it's possible to keep the law without being circumcised. He must be talking about something deeper, something spiritual. He says, this man can keep the requirement of the law without being circumcised. How can he do that? Well, he, does, he tells us in verse 28 and 29, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that he's circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. Very same contrast as Second Corinthians 3. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words... There's a third thing that Paul seems to be saying here when he says the law is spiritual. And that is, it cannot be fulfilled except by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in a different plane. When you start talking about really keeping it, you're talking about a different realm. And the problem with this man here is is that he's not in that realm. He's in the realm of the flesh. And you can keep the externals of the law in the flesh. In fact, that's what Paul did. He was a good Pharisee as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he was keeping all the externals of the law in the flesh, and men can do that. But once you see that the law is spiritual, and once you see what it really means, and the fact that you're a flesh, you can't do it. I mean, how is a guy going to go about doing that? Jesus said, uh, you know, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup. Well, he said, get the inside clean. Well, how are you going to do that? Try it, you know. Try not coveting. That's what came to Paul. That's the thing that came to him. And he realized that he was helpless. Once he saw that the law was spiritual it was, and he was a flesh, he couldn't do anything about it to keep it. So, let's go on in verse back in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Now you see, he's giving the explanation for verse 13. Why is it that the law produces these effects? Well, the reason is, is it can only be fulfilled over in this realm. And I'm not in that realm. I'm in this other realm. I'm a flesh. Now, notice the contrast here between the word spiritual and the word fleshly. 
same two words are used back in 1 Corinthians 2. Incidentally, this is another example. The word is not unspiritual as the NIV translates it. It's the word fleshly, totally different word. I don't know why they would do that. But you got two things. you got spiritual and fleshly. And you have the same contrast back in 2 Corinthians 2. Now, let's look at it here. It says in verse 14 of chapter 2, "...a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised." That's the lost man. "...but he who is spiritual," that's the Christian, "...appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him?" But we have, we Christians, have the mind of Christ. So the spiritual man has the mind of Christ. He's he's a Christian. And this is what he says in verse 1 then, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to men of flesh. There it is, the two words, same two words. Spiritual contrasted with men of flesh. Spiritual, in other words, I couldn't talk to you like you're Christians. I have to treat you like non-Christians. As to babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not men? So, what's he saying here? Well, we've talked about this before, but he's not setting up some permanent third category called a carnal Christian. What he's doing, he's saying, in fact, he's doing just the opposite. He says there's only two realms. You're either fleshly or spiritual, and I've got to treat you like you're fleshly. I've got to treat you like you belong to this realm over here, even though he's convinced that they are Christians. They're acting like lost men. And so... Uh, the same thing is true, the same contrast is true in Romans 7.14. He's explaining why the unregenerate man will always fail under the law, because he's fleshly and the law is spiritual. And the law can only be fulfilled in the realm of the Spirit. All the law does to a man who's in the flesh is make sin worse and get him deeper in bondage. And that's the next part of verse 14. I am a flesh, back in Romans 7, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. And um, the literal here is sold under sin. Now, why would they put that sold into bondage? Because the, the word sold, trying to convey in the English to us what this idea of being sold under something has to do with slavery. So they add the word bondage there. Not really in there. But the, the idea is sold under sin. And Paul used this term under sin before back in chapter 3. He says, we, we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. Not just that they're sinners or not just that they have sin, but they're under sin. This guy is sold under sin. He's a slave to sin. Alright. Whatever else we may say about him, he is of flesh sold in bondage to sin. Now, it's incredible to me that anybody who's read chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 would say that Paul's talking about 
a Christian, much less himself. Because what's it say in chapter 6? Well, this is what it says. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, this guy is a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Total contradiction. And then in verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. And then in verse 17 and 18, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then verse 20, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And uh, then verse 22, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your fruit resulting in holiness. So, um, the thing that we we need to get here is that all of those statements are true of all Christians. He says concerning all Christians, you were, you were slaves of sin, but now you're slaves of righteousness. In other words, this doesn't have to do with how you're doing on a particular day. You might have had a terrible week. You may have had the worst week of your Christian life as far as sin is concerned. But it's still an objective fact that you have been made free from sin and you're a slave to righteousness. This is talking about an objective state that we are to believe and lay hold of. This is the reality. Now, you can be defeated by believing a lie, but the fact is this is still true of you. Even when you're defeated, it's still true that sin is no longer your master and and righteousness is going to win in your life. And so that's an objective statement. It doesn't have to do with how bad you're doing at the time. And this statement in 7.14 is an objective statement. This guy is of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, you can't have them both true at the same time. It's just impossible. And the only way you can take this as being a Christian, if you hold this view that Paul is describing himself here, the only way you can hold that is to water it down to where it's almost unrecognizable. Now, I want to give you a quote from a man. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But he's a very good commentator. And I've, uh, I've been blessed by a lot of the things that he's written. But he holds this position. Now, let me just tell you how he expounds this verse, verse 14. This is a quote. Every earnest Christian advances in goodness, but he cannot arrive at perfection. Why not? Because he's sold under sin. Isn't that amazing? In other words, the statement, I am a flesh sold in bondage to sin equals, I can't arrive at perfection. You see how much you have to water that down? Paul's not talking here. He's not describing a guy who can't arrive at perfection. He's describing a guy, to use his own words, he's in bondage. He's in captivity. He's a slave to sin. He's not some little deal where you know I'm. I, I know I've never quite attained to absolute perfection yet. No, that's not what he's saying. I mean, if you want to know what he means when he says "sold under sin," you just read the next verse, verse fifteen. For that which I'm doing, I don't, present I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. This is a this is a 
it's a far cry from saying he's not yet perfect, you see. He's a slave. This guy is a slave, as he says. Now, I know we I know we're dealing with a lot of stuff here, but we've got to keep going for a little while longer. A little bit earlier I said that first Corinthians three is referring to two realms, the spiritual and the fleshly. One's a Christian, one's not a Christian. Well, somebody might say, um, they might disagree with that, and they might say, well, nevertheless, those Corinthians were Christians, which is true, they were. They were Christians, and yet uh, Paul addresses them as if they were men of flesh, and he says they were carnal. And he says also that they were babes in Christ. So maybe that's what Paul's saying here, you know. I'm a flesh, I'm carnal. Now think about what that means. Paul at the time of writing is saying, I'm just like those Corinthians were over there. I'm acting like a lost man, and I'm defeated by sin, and I'm a babe in Christ. Now you think the Apostle Paul was really saying that when he was writing this letter. You see, it doesn't fit if you take it that way. In fact, this whole idea of saying that because this section is in the present tense, it must be Paul talking about himself at the time of writing. That whole idea is just not true. Because a lot of times you use the present tense when you're referring to something in the past. We do that ourselves all the time. College students do it all the time. You know, I'm going down the road and this guy comes up and says, it's all in the present. And and so I go such and such and he says and I say, See, it's all present tense, but they're referring to something in the past. Why do you do that? Well, it's called the dramatic present, and what you're doing is you're describing blow by blow something so that the person enters into it as if it was happening right then. That's all, that's all it need be. The very fact that for the first 300 years of church history, people understood this as a non-Christian proves that you don't have to say this is Paul at the time of writing. That's just that's something that, in fact, some people contend that Paul isn't referring in any way, shape, or form to himself. Now, I don't think that's right, because you don't say this kind of thing unless you've experienced it. But nevertheless, he's not concerned here primarily about himself and his experience. He's concerned here about teaching us what the law does to a man who's in the flesh, to whom the commandment has come, who understands that the law is spiritual, and he desperately wants to keep it, but he can't. That's the whole purpose of this thing. Not only that, but notice this in verse 14. The transition to the present tense doesn't come when he's talking about himself. The transition to the present tense comes when he's talking about the law. For we know that the law is spiritual. He can't say we know the law was spiritual. We know the law is spiritual. And then he just stays in the present tense and begins to describe this thing blow by blow. Well, I'm sorry to have to spend so much time on what this doesn't mean, but Lord willing, it will be worth it as we get clear on this because it really does have tremendous ramifications. I can remember in my own life where every thought of really having victory would run up against Romans 7, and the devil would tell me, you cannot have victory over that whatever it is. 
Now, I, I trust that many of the men who take this position on Romans 7 don't believe that way, but some of them do. And when it filters down to the man in the pew, um, so-called, <laughs> that guy takes it like this. Yeah, I'm defeated, and Paul was defeated too. That's the way they take it. And the, the statement, we sin daily in thought, word, and deed, which is a true statement when you understand it properly, they take that to mean my conscience is defiled, defiled by being defeated daily by, by sin in thought, word, and deed. That's not what that statement meant originally. And once you understand that Paul's not even talking about that here, and he's certainly not talking about himself being defeated and carnal and a babe in Christ, and the context is not talking at all about the Christian's remaining sin. It's talking about the law and a man in the flesh and a man who's a slave to sin. Now, he's going to explain what happens. And Lord willing, as we go on, I want to read some quotes from church history. Um, people like John Bunyan uh, describing what he went through. And you'll see that it was almost identical to this man here in Romans 7. In fact, the statements he makes are unbelievable. And um, they were unconsciously made by a man who, to whom the commandment had come. So what's the context in verse 14? What, what's going on here? Well, he just said in verse 13 that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with sin. And now he's going to explain it. For the law is over here. When you talk about fulfilling it, you have to walk in the Spirit if you're going to fulfill it. He says that in chapter 8 and verse 4, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So the law has to be fulfilled by walking in the Spirit, but this man is of flesh sold into bondage to sin. And all he's going to do when you bring the law to bear upon him is he's going to fail more. That's the whole point of this section. That's why he's describing this whole thing. He wants to expand upon what he said and bring it out and draw it out. Now, we forget how radical this is because most of the Jews in general, they thought that they were good. And they thought they were keeping the law. I thank thee that I'm not like other men. You know, I don't have these problems. And it's only when the Holy Spirit brings a commandment home to your heart and you start realizing how miserable you are and how sinful you are that sin might appear for what it is. That through the commandment, sin might become exceedingly sinful. So what a description Paul gives us here of the unregenerate man. He's... He's of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And if we're Christians, what a reason to thank God that though we were slaves to sin, we've been made free and we've been made slaves to righteousness. So, Lord willing, we'll go on next time. We won't have to lay down so many foundational things. We can go on and look at the, the meaning of this section. And then eventually, I want, uh, hopefully, I want to talk about this whole idea of what sin is, a biblical concept of sin, because the things that I have been saying have been abused the other direction, too. And men have even said that if a Christian uh, has any struggle with sin, they're not a Christian.
or that you have that or that you can attain to sinless perfection and so uh, they deny Romans 7 because they do teach sinless perfection that's why some of these guys make these comments that they do they say Paul is saying that he can't have sinless perfection. Well, that's true, but you can get that from other scriptures. You don't have to get that from Romans 7. And he's saying a lot more than that in Romans 7. So, Lord willing, maybe we can talk about that too eventually here. Well, let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at... uh, at this Apostle Paul and what you did in his life. Lord, it's incredible. We think of this man, um, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Uh, Proud, certain of himself, and then uh, you cause a commandment to come home to his heart and he began to realize what sin really is. And it was no longer a theory, but it was a reality in his own heart. And uh, he said, sin came alive and I died. And Lord, we marvel at the things that are said here in this last half of Romans 7. Of this man who is a flesh sold into bondage to sin and he, and he realizes it. And uh, we thank you for the working of your spirit that would make anybody to realize that they are slaves and we thank lord jesus of what you said that everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin and the slave does not remain in the house forever and uh, we just pray open the eyes of anyone who still thinks of sin as a theoretical thing and enable them to see that it's something inside of them and that it's their master we pray this with a view to that cry that Paul makes I thank God through Jesus Christ that he would set me free the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death we thank you in Jesus name Amen Amen